Welcome, guys. Second to last week. Um, so I was talking to my group. We have, it's been a really, really long time since we've had a summer study go after 4th of July. Um, and we kind of run into this like with our winter spring study as far as uh, do you like take a week off for spring break? Do you go right through it or whatever? And we've tried all these different ways. And I feel like for spring break and also for, um, for like the day after 4th of July, it's like, well, everyone who's not here has a boat probably. <laughs> and, and so I am sad that I don't have a boat. So I might as well be with everyone else and commiserate with them. But I just feel like, oh, well, we're not going to take off a week in summer. And we're already obviously doing a ton of the Bible in a short amount of time. So I thought, we're just going to go for it. So here we are. We all celebrated our fourth, probably in Coralville. <laughs> um, and next week's our final week. But yeah, I am so encouraged that so many of you guys are hanging with us. I know that this is fast. I know that it's different and it's challenging. I hope that this comes across in the right tone. But even I have had a hard time like maintaining courage through this. I was telling a couple of you like, there's been several moments where I'm like, oh, Rebecca, why in the world did you do Isaiah? You know, like when you feel just insecure, like why would you pick something so challenging or whatever? It's just my own immaturity and flesh. But, um, and th then I come here and I'm like, oh my word, I'm not alone. Like we can do this. We can do hard things. We can study Isaiah in the summer. So uh, all that to say, I'm thankful for you guys and excited to finish with you guys next week. Um, I hope that you have felt, especially the last two weeks, how the study is kind of gaining momentum and also even just like um, optimism and even familiarity. Um, next week, uh, even more so. And you had to have been there, but there was a moment going through the last week of the study um, with, with Jeff um, and then with Alex and Lily as we were editing this. We're seriously, Jeff and I were just like laughing together at our delight in God's word because there are some things that we get to see in our next week of, of homework that are just such a joy to tie a bow on, to make a connection with um, that. Even then I was like, oh, if women give up in the book of judgment, in the, in the sad week of judgment, I will feel so bad for them because there's so much joy that I think that we will all find in this next week um, from God's inspired words. So I hope that you are eager to, to uh, get, it, get it all done this next week and come back. And uh, yeah, if there's somebody that maybe missed tonight and last week, it might just take a text to be like, it's okay to jump back in. Like that's not cheating to just jump in and finish it because any time that we can be encouraged that we're not alone as we try to become women of the word, it's a good thing. So send that text, call that person, say that, just a warm invite to come back in and, and finish, finish strong. So guys, as we get started on, uh, on this week, let's talk about where we've been the last four or five weeks. So we have worked towards, like climbed up four summits so far. We saw Isaiah's vision where he was in the throne room of God. And then we were in the book of judgment and we were asking the questions, how bad was it really? And why was God so harsh? 
Then last week we opened up to Isaiah 40 where it said, comfort, comfort. My whole, that whole time that Christy was talking, didn't it just feel like you were getting hugged the whole time? The whole talk was just a hug. She called last week the grand pivot in the book. And I, slightly less classy, call it the happy hinge of the book. We went from the book of judgment to the book of hope last week. And what did we see from these summits, guys? In the last month, what have we seen as we climbed up to these high points in Isaiah? Well, we've seen a lot of Genesis. And when we've seen Genesis language, it has helped us understand the depths of man's rebellion. But also, even right away, it showed us that thread of promise and rescue. We've seen Exodus language almost every single week. Every time we hear that, we imagine Isaiah's original audience, those who are getting beat up by their own sinful choices, or maybe those who are in exile or those who have come back from exile and they're disappointed. And we hear that Exodus language almost like pull them to their ed- the edge of their seat, trying to get them to feel some kind of hope. Because when they hear Exodus language, they are thinking, wait a minute, is God going to do it again? Is there going to be a triumph even greater than the rescue from Egypt? What restoration could possibly be greater? What redemption could be greater? And you feel, feel them grow in anticipation. And then last week, as we were in 40 and 41 and 42, we read about a servant. That's what we saw from that summit, this talk of a servant. We read, first of all, that Israel was called the servant of the Lord, right? And we connected that there was this positive language, this language of relationship and encouragement. We read that they were the servant just like Adam and Eve. So they were beloved image bearers who God had shared his work with. And then we just moved over one chapter and we watched as the story kind of narrowed in from Israel being the servant of the Lord. The story then contracts in on one single man becoming the servant of the Lord. He would be the servant that Adam, Eve, and Israel failed to be. And that servant is the promised rescuer. So this is where we have to pause. We ask a question. We're like, wait a minute. Is this God's backup plan? that this one man would be the servant. Is this God's plan that he made in a pinch that he made as uh, because Isaiah's countrymen were kind of falling off the wagon morally and spiritually? No, we realize that these are promises that pulled all the way back to the patriarchs, to the, to Abraham and his family. We realize that these were promises that were delivered and then carried through by the covenants into Isaiah's day. And that gets us to where we were this week, where we weren't just reading about the servant, but we read about the suffering servant. And we did some repetitive reading, which I know you were all just waiting to get back into repetitive reading like we do often. And the part of why we did that is because actually these songs of the suffering servant, these are probably some of the most familiar, maybe next to the, the throne room language. This song, as some people call it, is kind of our Easter text, right? It's what we build our Easter services around. And because it's familiar, this might seem backwards, but actually repetitive reading is actually going to freshen it up for us as students. And so we read it again and again, and we tried to get closer and closer to the text to see what we could understand. And so this is where we are, the suffering servant. 
And our question as we move through tonight, guys, is this, how can we have hope according to this text? So I'm not, I'm not creative every single week. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, wheel every week. We're just going to ask a question we've been asking for this study. How can we have hope according to this text? And I think you'd agree with me that it's kind of a paradox at first. It seems a bit upside down. So our challenge is that we need to approach it as if we're reading it for the first time, as if we're hearing it for the very first time. So behold the suffering servant, guys. Here's how we're going to go through it. I have three points. I'm so organized tonight. Three points. But then as I went through and kind of um, got to these three points, I actually found that I have three problems with each of those points or three objections or three things that I think are hard to understand. So we're going to start with this. We can have hope because the promised rescuer is both a royal victor and a suffering servant. Okay. We read this language a lot in the workbook. We're going to talk about it a lot tonight. Here's how we can have hope based on this text. Because the promised rescuer is both a royal victor and a suffering servant. So what are some of the things that we learned? Just some of those simple observations that we made in those first couple of days. Well, we saw that there was hints at royalty. And some of you marked up little crowns over this language that sounded like a king or somebody ruling. And so we saw that where there was royalty, there was also hints at David. And we don't even need to go any further to find hope. Because if you put yourself in that original audience, guys, that talk that got us back to David, that talk about like a little, a little root out of dry land, dry ground, we have to notice that that took them back to that promise of that little shoot coming out of a stump, a disciplined stump. And we think about them sitting there in exile, on their way to exile, back from exile. And they're looking around and they don't see a king from David's line, do they? They don't see a king at all. 70 years in either Assyria or Babylon, there's no king for them to look to, to say, oh, remember God's promise? Remember God's promise to David that there will forever be a king from his line on the throne? Guys, they see nothing. They see an empty throne. There's no, nothing for them to grasp onto that shows that God's promises have continued. So when they're reading this reference to royalty and to David's line, it gives them hope. It's like picking up that thread again, that David's line will continue. And we read about this phrase, the arm of the Lord, which is royal in its nature. And we talked about how is it that that, how does that help us understand who this suffering servant is? The arm of the Lord, it's an extension of the Lord of Yahweh, an extension who will carry out, who will execute the work of the Lord, which is salvation. And one of our cross references is beautiful. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Did you guys think through what's being described there? I love this. He bared his holy arm. You know, I got to do it, right? It's this, right? He, what is God doing? What is he saying he's doing? He's flexing. That's what I see here. God is flexing. He's showing his power when he says, behold, my suffering servant. And what is he going to do with that power? He's going to save. The Lord saves. And we read that this royal victor, that this 
arm of the Lord is high and lifted up. And we said, oh, we know what that sounds like. It sounds like the throne room. It sounds like week one. But there, it was God. It was Yahweh who was described as high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And so we pause and we ask, why? Why would Isaiah want us to remember the throne room? And maybe some of you more naturally actually went to a contrast saying, well, God was majestic. That was God in his holiness and splendor. And you're picturing a throne room with marble and it's, and it's pristine and it's almost intoxicating in its beauty. But then the text that we read, this high and lifted up servant seems to be described as the very opposite, incredibly average and normal and gruesome and dirty even. But maybe you also made the contrast as you thought about why would Isaiah use the same language of this servant is high and lifted up. Maybe you ask the question, wait a minute, is the servant Yahweh? Are they the same person? You pull in what you're wondering about the arm of the Lord and maybe you get as far as saying, well, he's an extension of Yahweh. And it's okay to not have that fully figured out, but we're just pulling pieces together as we're trying to understand who the servant is, the servant who is high and lifted up. And we went through and we marked times when royalty was talked about and suffering. And we draw a crown and we drew an S and we drew a crown and we wrote an S. And we noticed actually that while there's so much talking about this royal victor, there was so much about suffering. It's like it's braided together in this text. It's intertwined. We read that the suffering servant was despised, rejected, and marred. We read that this arm of the Lord is shouldering sin and sorrow. And that's supposed to give us hope when I say, wait, I have a problem. Because in my mind, those two don't go together. How can the promised rescuer be a royal victor and a suffering servant? They're antagonistic to each other. They don't make sense. They can't go together. And maybe we've just been in it too long to actually hear how absurd it is. So think about it, guys. Think as if you were just hearing this for the first time. This is an enigma. So imagine if there was someone who was running for office, guys. But imagine that this person, even at how he sounded, how, how he looked, how he spoke, how he acted. Everything about him was weak. Everything about him was rejected and he was beaten up, but he was running for office. Would he have your vote? But maybe it's not just how he came across, but actually rather than him even denying what could be perceived as weakness, actually that was his very political, that was his strategy. And we kind of saw that as we're putting these pieces together of the suffering servant. We saw through our repetitive reading that the victory actually hinges on this servant's suffering. It hinges on it. Okay, where else do we find hope, guys? Well, as we unpack this, as this character opens up to us, we learn that the servant's suffering on the cross provided atonement. So what are some of the observations that we made? Well, I think it's important to realize that this servant who died, he was more than just a martyr. 
It's not just that he died, it's that he died for the purpose of atonement. And then we even went even deeper and we looked at how this was atonement, the the nature of this atonement was that of a substitute, that he was dying for someone else. And we saw this reference to him sprinkling the nations. And we went back to Exodus to find the roots of that. And what did we find, guys? We said, why do you think Isaiah uses this language just like we did with high and lifted up? Why do you think? He talks about sprinkling the nations. And it took us back to the old covenant, to the Mosaic covenant. The stories that would have been so familiar to Isaiah's audience. And what we saw is that the king or the the priest would take the blood of the sacrificed animal, the bull, and would sprinkle it on the people and would sprinkle it on the altar. On the day of atonement would go and sprinkle it in the throne room in the Holy of Holies. We went to another cross-reference that showed that actually Aaron and his family was told that they had to take that sacrificed animal's blood and put it on the earlobe. And where else? Bible trivia, where else? The toe, the big toe. It's so weird. It's so random. But tuck that away someday. You will want it for Bible trivia. Earlobe, big toe. And you'll be like, thanks, Rebecca. And we ask, why? Why is he talking about this? And hopefully lots and lots of questions came to your mind, guys. Why did the priests back then need the sprinkling? And maybe we connected, oh, well, it's because they were just men. They were Israelite men. They were among their own kind, but they also were sinners. And so for them to do the, the work that the servants of the Lord needed to do, they first had to have a blood covering. They had to have atonement. And that through this sacrificial system, that the people were being made clean. Maybe we even went back when we saw this mention of lamb and sheep and we went back to the Passover story, a story that's wonderfully familiar to many of us, a comfort to so many of us. This idea that the blood of the sacrificial lamb provided a covering as it covered the door frame. It's like it covered the guilt of the family behind that door and death would pass over them. So when we're reading that this servant of God's choosing is going to sprinkle many nations. We don't figure it all out in that moment, but we think, oh, he's like a priest. But as we connect more dots, we think, oh, he's like the sacrificed animal himself as his blood made an atonement. For who? The Israelites? For the nations. And so then we start to have questions about the covenants And we think something has changed since the Mosaic or the Old Covenant. It's not that it was canceled, but it's more like it was, it's opened up. It's like it's grown with time as God's story unfolds. And now we see all the nations being provided atonement. But I have a problem with this, guys. And this is where my problems are going to get way more personal. My problem with this whole talk about atonement It's not going to sound very godly, but actually I am not convinced that this, that atonement is actually, is now or ever was my greatest need. So if I'm sitting in the chair and the person up front is telling me that I need to care about atonement or that I should be more hope-filled because this servant from back in Isaiah provided atonement for me, There's a good chance many days of the week, many weeks of the year 
that that doesn't do it for me because I'm not convinced that that's actually my greatest need. Now, maybe even before Jesus became my Lord, I think I just want to invite us to be honest tonight. If we're in any kind of poised, put together, machine mode, I'd like us to just shake that off for the rest of this time and be honest. And I actually think that the story of the bleeding woman put some words to this for me. So here we are now mentioning her for the third time. And I think about her story from the Gospels. This woman who was unclean, who had been bleeding for 12 years, who was not getting better, but only worse. And we see her press through the crowds to touch the hem of Jesus's robe. And we get this feeling that after she touches it, even though she feels the bleeding stop, that she kind of backs up. Because Jesus turns around and says, who has touched me? Because he felt the power come out of him. We talked about this in the first week, but I want us to think about this, guys. Why do you think she shirked away like that? We can't know for sure, but I feel like possibly I relate with her because I believe that the reason Jesus called her back out of the crowd in her healed state is because she needed to lock eyes with Jesus. And she needed to understand that her hope was not in her circumstances changing, but that her hope was in Jesus. I think there's a chance that this woman could have been wrong about what she most needed. She touched his robe and her circumstances changed. There's a lot of commentaries that will talk about there's a chance that she kind of saw Jesus as like a magician. She just wanted a magic trick. And we can't blame her, right? She was suffering for 12 years. But Jesus knew her and knew that just changed circumstances will not eternally satisfy her. And so he calls her out. And gives her a chance to deal with her sin. And speaks to her about faith. And has a conversation with her. So often in my life, guys, what I am most convinced of is that my circumstances need to change. You talk to me on a given week. You pull me out of brainstorming or or daydreaming. And what I'm thinking about is what circumstances need to change in my life. There are times in each season of my life when I've wanted my circumstances to change. I was thinking back, you know, my hope has been in Christ since eighth grade, but so often my gaze falls to my circumstances. I remember junior high, I just did not want to be known as the pastor's kid anymore. It was just too embarrassing. I wanted those circumstances to change. I didn't want to be known as the goody-goody. In high school, after God had done a lot of work in my heart and I was in love with him, still, 
I did not want the persecution, the ridicule that came from being, from loving Jesus. I wanted that pressure to go away, those circumstances to go away. Went to college and I just wanted the pressure of nursing school to lighten. I got married and I, I just wanted Matt to figure out how to meet my every single need that I ever could have or would have or ever did have that I had built up over the last 21 years. That's all. I just wanted marriage to be easier. I just wanted him to read my mind as a newlywed, as a new mom. I just wanted my circumstances to change. If the kids would just grow up, if the kids would just sleep through the night, if the kids would just obey, if the kids would just wipe themselves, my circumstances would be better. But guys, there's a lot of examples that don't fit in a bullet point list. There's a lot of circumstances in my life that are way more deeply laced around my heart that don't fit in a list like that, that aren't as easy to identify or summarize. And I'm assuming that the same is true for you guys as well. So where these truths of Isaiah come down to real life is when we ask ourselves what circumstances are hijacking our thoughts are hijacking our emotions. What are the circumstances in your life that you're thinking about when you're thinking about nothing? Maybe it is a difficult person that you're related to that you have to deal with regularly. A circumstance that you see no change coming in. Maybe for you, it's a career that won't improve. You're just stuck. You're just spinning your wheels. You're just stuck there. Maybe it's the person you're married to. Maybe it's your singleness. I wonder when you think about those things, those heartaches, those obsessions, that chronic disappointment, that doubt that plagues, I wonder if you could relate with the bleeding woman. And I wonder if, like me, do you ever actually feel like you actually just press into Jesus, wanting more, just like a magic trick from him? I just want to snap my fingers and God, you're like a genie in a bottle. Just give me three. There's three circumstances that I want to change. I believe, Lord, do it. And I believe in that moment that if these circumstances would change, then I would have hope. And so I press in for a quick miracle. I just want a little relief, Jesus. But what he does so often in those moments for me, what he did for that woman is he draws me out and lifts my gaze. And what I see in that moment, in that summit, if you will, is I see a great high priest who sprinkled not just the Jewish people with his purifying blood, but the nations. He lifts my gaze and I see the arm who is the Lord. And it is flexed and it is anointed and it brings salvation to once hardened hearts. And I see him 
him who was the beloved son, but whose anguish was so great that he sweat blood. I see him who was the beloved son, but whose heel is bruised from the serpent's. I see him when he lifts my gaze. And although he is called the lion of Judah and the root of David, Revelation actually describes him as one who looked like a slaughtered lamb, even in his moment of victory. As he lifts my gaze and as he comes into view, kind of taking the foreground with my circumstances behind, he comes into view. And actually what I realized is in that moment, Ready? More honesty? What I realize so often in that moment is that maybe I don't want to identify with the suffering king. Do you see why? Because I start to connect that if I am going to follow a suffering servant, then maybe I too am going to be asked to suffer. Maybe I start to connect that to follow a crucified king means that I too will be invited to pick up my cross and to follow him. And I have to come face to face with the fact that I have put these expectations on the Christian life, that my life is supposed to be about comfort and ease and promotion and affirmation and attention. I could keep going. And so when he lifts my gaze and I see him as he's described in this portion of Isaiah, I'm actually slowed for a moment to ask the hard questions. Do I want to identify with the crucified king, with the suffering servant? Where is our hope in this text? especially if we feel like we can't get out of our own way, our stubbornness, our rebellion, our love for control. We just can't seem to get out of our own way and embrace the reality of who Jesus is. Where is our hope? The good news this week, just like every other week so far, is that God is, is on his throne. And at this point, you're like, get a new line, Rebecca. That doesn't even apply. Yes, it does. Hold on. Here's what I see in this text, guys. When the children of God were carried off into exile, into suffering, when they returned from exile and it was still crummy, God was still on his throne. In exile, in post-exile, God never lost control. We talked about how Assyria was like an axe in God's hand, showing that God had not lost control to the Assyrians and then later to the Babylonians, that he was always in perfect sovereign control. He was on his throne in that season of discipline, in that season of suffering. But what about everything we read in Mark this week, as Isaiah sent us to the Gospels? At the scene of the cross, our truth here is that God never lost control. 
That scene is so vivid. It's so graphic. It's so dark. It's horrifying. And yet we understand when we put Isaiah and the gospels together, that this was God's will. It was God's will to crush him. God had not lost control. So just like Isaiah's original audience didn't need to be afraid that Assyria had usurped God, that Babylon had overcome him. At the scene of the cross, they did not need to fear. We don't need to fear that evil had overcome. In that moment, God was actually in control. Okay, go back to exile again. What else is our good news? Is that that suffering was not in vain. Just like the coal from the scene in Isaiah's vision, just like exile, the season of discipline, we have seen that there was a purpose in this, that the pain of God's children is never in vain, that it always serves a purpose. It is not in vain. The point of the discipline for the exiles was to communicate God's holiness, was to communicate his justice and even his mercy. The purpose was to purify his children What about at the cross? It was not in vain because it allowed the children of God to once again draw near to their father. But in day four this week, we saw that there was even more because we saw that after Jesus, because Jesus obeyed on the cross, we see that the cross wasn't even in vain for him as that suffering servant found his rightful place at the right hand of God and received his reward as he divided the spoils with the many, as God exalted him to the right hand. And so then we march that out to today, guys. Our sufferings, our circumstances, they don't have to be in vain. God has not lost control. When something pops up on the horizon, much like an Assyria or a Babylon, something that looks like it's going to hurt, something that looks like it's going to burn like a coal, we in that moment recall that God is on his throne. Come what may, he will be faithful. He will be good. The evil in this world has not overcome him. Ladies, I look out here and the losses and the sufferings out here are many. And I don't know the half of them. But amidst all of these promises and this good news, I also want to say that your sufferings are real. Some of you are going through things that you would never have imagined as a young girl. And those are real. We live east of Eden. And some of you have sufferings and have circumstances that will probably exist until the day you go to glory. We don't just slap a Bible verse on that and tell you, see you next Sunday. We weep with you. We comfort you. And every now and then we whisper, God's on his throne, ladies. And he's good. And that the arm of the Lord is our great high priest who feels what you feel 
who knows the depth of your confusion, who knows how bad you hurt, who knows how hard it is for you to not be hard-hearted. And then we just link arms and we do life together. And we just put it on repeat. He's on his throne. The suffering is not in vain. He's on his throne. The suffering is not in vain. And we give each other hope in that moment. So ladies, as we near the end of Isaiah, our good news tonight is that our circumstances do not define us. Ladies, your circumstances do not define you and your hope does not have to wax and wane based on them. That's really, really good news. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in a person. So we look out at the horizon And come what may, what we see is the scene of the cross. We see Jesus and that scene of him suffering for us. It gives us hope and it, it, it's the lens by which we see our sufferings. Let's pray. Father, we have such good news from your word. We have such hope. Lord, I pray for the women out here whose sufferings are great, whose sufferings are hefty and chronic. Lord, I pray for the women whose circumstances are, are maybe just more daily right now, who are just struggling with contentment or thankfulness. And, and everyone in between those two extremes, Lord. And Lord, as we look at the cross where you were crushed and where you were pierced and where you shouldered the greatest suffering we can imagine, we claim the truth that although we are hard pressed on every side, we are not crushed. And while we feel persecuted, we are not abandoned. And Lord, while we deserve your punishment, we instead get your pleasure because of Jesus. We are so happy to be your children, Lord. Would you give us what we need tonight, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.